Um, can I just ask a question? How many of you are on Facebook? Okay, hands down. That's like school, isn't it? Hands down. Um, I think Facebook should be banned. We need to say it as it is. Facebook is evil. And it destroys people's lives. I don't always agree with Donald Trump, but he's right on this one. It is all fake news. It's time that real Christians took a stand against the lies and the abuse. Now, Lynn and I were away last week at our younger daughter's wedding in Spitalfields, which is very cool and trendy. That's why I've got the designer stubble, because I'm cool and trendy as well, um, apart from the bald patches. Um, But you need to know what happened on Facebook while we were gone. Someone called Andy Kind spoke. Uh, Probably not his real name. And he kind of did okay for a professional comedian. And then someone called Mike Cartwright, who used to be one of our best worship leaders. His position is currently under review. Someone called Mike Cartwright posted this on Facebook straight afterwards. Really, really good preach this morning. Steve, any chance you could be away more often? Four people, and we know who you are. Four people immediately liked it, and they will be receiving letters in the post. I ask you, what would you rather have, a professional comedian or a professional theologian? Don't answer that. Obviously, um, just like Andy Kind, but nowhere near as good as Andy Kind, I am joking. Andy is a a great guy, he's a a great friend of ours and a, a great speaker, and we were really, really pleased that he spoke so well and blessed so many people last week, as we knew that he would. So uh, we're back, and um, I'm afraid it's down to earth with a bang this week. I always try and keep an eye on what's happening in the news each week, and I've been shocked and saddened to hear yet more stories coming out of long-standing abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, The BBC says the Church has had an avalanche of claims all over the world. And there's been a a widespread cover-up of moving priests around where they can just do it again instead of exposing them and charging them. Um, There was a report in 2009 that said it was endemic in Catholic schools and orphanages in Ireland for most of the 20th century. I don't know about you, but if ever there was a good reason to believe in hell, it would be for child abusers. And I wish we could say that it's just the Catholic Church and distance ourselves from it in that way, but we can't. How many times have we seen in the church TV evangelists exposed for adultery and financial abuse and prostitutes and gay affairs and drugs and more besides, with hypocrisy and a lack of accountability and often sheer denial. TV evangelists with their millionaire lifestyles, their multi-million dollar salaries, mansions, private jets, and promises of healing prayers for people, for anyone who sends in a donation, minimum $10, cash, check, or MasterCard accepted. 
So the question that I want to talk about this morning is, what kind of church is worth believing in? And in the light of all of that, I wouldn't blame you if you said none of them. No wonder a whole generation of people, including many churchgoers, have become people who say, we like Jesus, but not the church. No wonder church leaders are viewed with suspicion because the assumption is that they're all the same. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, we can be fairly sure that the kind of church I've been describing isn't what he had in mind. I think he expected the gates of hell to be our enemy outside the church, not the enemy within. So if we're going to look at this question of what kind of church is worth believing in, I think we should probably start by asking what kind Jesus believes in. And I think we have a clue to that from the people who say we like Jesus but not the church. In other words, the kind of church that they'd believe in is one that as much as possible looks like Jesus. Which when you think about it for a moment really shouldn't be that radical an idea, should it? So let's talk first about what kind of church isn't worth believing in. And obviously I'm just speaking for myself on this, so you can tell me later uh, whether you agree with these points or not. I'm not interested in a church that's happy just to oversee the gradual decline of the church, from its currently perceived irrelevance to its eventual extinction and just try to slow that down as best it can. I'm not interested in entertaining a religious audience. I'm not interested in measuring ourselves against other churches. I'm not interested in being a church that's happy just doing the same old thing week after week, year after year. I'm not interested in being a church that doesn't really want to grow because we like it the way it is. I can't really imagine Jesus saying, I'm going to go to another church because this one's too big for me. I'm not interested in the money. And I'm not interested in the Christian career ladder, doing stuff that will make my CV look good on the way to a bigger and better parish. The kind of church that I am interested in is one like this. I'm interested in being a church that storms the gates of hell in people's lives. I'm interested in being a church that actually believes in Jesus' victory over sin and death and suffering and despair and wants to see the kingdom come for people. A church that wants to do the stuff that Jesus did. I'm interested in being a church that is known for what it's for, not for what it's against. I want to be a church that can explain to people why Jesus is the answer to questions that they actually have, not ones that they used to have or they ought to have. I want to be a church that isn't just interested in people's spiritual lives, but the whole of their lives. I want to be a church that looks after the poor, not as a Trojan horse to get them to come to church, but just because Jesus loves them. So we love them too. And I want to be a church that's real, that isn't kidding itself, and that lives in the real world that is inhabited by other people. And a church that, frankly, 
isn't that worried about what people think. Or more to the point, isn't worried what religious people think. I want to be a church that is compelling to be part of. Not because we have to, to get our kids into a particular school, or because we worry that God will be angry with us if we don't go. I don't even want to be a church that is compelling because of the preaching. There's not much chance of that, after all. Not unless we can get Andy kind every week. I want to be a church that is compelling because there's a sense of the presence of God there. Something tangible because of him and what he does in people's lives. A presence of God who, uh, that people who come from an unchurched background can sense, even if they don't have the language for it. And a church where it is clear from the welcome that people get, not just from the welcome team, but the welcome they get from all of us, that they're not just welcome to be here, but they're wanted here. Please come and be part of us, whoever you are, and come just as you are. You would be doing us the favour by doing that, not us doing you a favour. If you need to change, then number one, who doesn't? And number two, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to tell you that. It's not our job to be telling people that. Unless you're harming other people, of course, in which case, don't worry, we certainly will tell you. But we refuse to be a club that is just there to provide religious goods and services for the insiders. Value for money for their tithes. A church that, whatever it says, is in reality closed to new members in outlook and attitude. We want to be a church that ordinary people outside the church think is relevant to them and would be missed if we weren't there which is not something you can necessarily say about all churches. Yes, we want to be close circles of friends, but we want to be circles of friends who are looking outwards, not inwards, with porous boundaries that let people in to those circles. We want to be a church that is continually rethinking and refreshing what we're doing and how we're doing it to make sure that we're staying in touch with the Holy Spirit who is always speaking and leading and moving. And the reason that we want to do all of that is because that's what we think Jesus would do. So if you've only just recently started coming to the vineyard, then hearing some of this will either excite you or worry you. Do we expect his church to grow? Yes, of course. Why wouldn't we? If Jesus said, I will build my church, then surely the only thing that can stop it growing is if we get in the way. Because we like it as it is. Thank you very much. So we find subtle ways and maybe not so subtle ways to make it obvious to people that they are welcome in theory, but maybe not so in practice. In many churches, the message you can get whether they mean it or not, is first you need to behave like us, then you need to believe like us, and then maybe you can belong with us. But in the vineyard, we think that we are copying Jesus when we reverse the order of that. So we say it starts with, come as you are. Come and belong. 
Come and kick the tires. Come and get involved and see if this is real. And if we are real. And if our God is real before you're expected to believe anything. And certainly before you behave. And behave is in inverted commas because Jesus said that we were supposed to be like shepherds, not sheepdogs. When Jesus comes into our lives and we get to know him and we get to know a bit about the Bible, then we soon start to realize where things need to change. But not because a bunch of religious people have decided it's their job to be telling people that. So in the rest of the time this morning, I want to put a biblical framework around this question of what kind of church is worth believing in. Or as my original title for this talk had it, when I was feeling a bit more aggressive, what kind of church is worth bothering with. And uh, because I've got quite a lot of ground to make up, obviously, on Andy's preaching from last Sunday, um, I'm going to default to the classic three points. So in the Old Testament, there were over 600 commandments. And, And they together defined what it meant to be right with God. Over 600 things that God said, if you do these or don't do these, then by definition, you will be right with me. You will be righteous, which is actually what that word means, right with God and right with each other. Do these things and your community will be right in the way that you live with each other and you treat each other. But you know, the main problem with a set of rules is that the circumstances of life change all the time, don't they? And you can't have rules for everything. When the people of Israel were given these commandments, they were a nomadic people on a journey through the desert. But when they came into the promised land, they built towns and cities. So they started to face new questions for which the old commandments didn't necessarily work in exactly the same way. So at the time of Jesus, faithful believers were always asking the religious leaders for interpretations and to tell them which rules were the most important ones. And this is what happens with Jesus one day. He's asked a a genuine question which is, what is the most important commandment? And he says, it's this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he said, all of the others hang on this one. Or as one translation translation puts it, everything else in the Bible depends on this. Which is kind of a radical thought, isn't it? If you uh, Google what churches are known for, as, as I did last week, the first two pages of results are all about two things. One is their buildings, and the other is their beliefs and their doctrines. Now, there is not a lot of chance of people coming to admire our building, um, especially when it's raining and the roof leaks. Nice churches have stained glass windows. Ours are from B&Q. And of course, beliefs are important, but what we believe in and who we believe in 
and what kind of God he is are more important. And even more important than our beliefs is how our lives are different because of those beliefs. So point number one of what kind of church is worth believing in is one that's passionate about that great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you know, this, this kind of loving God isn't just a wishy-washy, romantic kind of love that's all about feelings and goosebumps. Whereas someone once said, we sing songs as if Jesus was my girlfriend. It's not just heart and soul, it's also mind and strength. And sadly, many churches are kind of known for their anti-intellectualism. They don't encourage people to love God with their minds as well. They aren't good at not only allowing, but inviting people to have questions and to think through where God is when stuff happens in some of the challenges of life. They say to people, don't let your head get in the way of your heart. Just put your mind in neutral and just believe. But Jesus says here that we should love the Lord our God with all our mind as well. And to love him with all our strength as well. So not just to cuddle up under our duvets listening to worship music and feeling the love. But to get off the sofa and get out there and do the stuff. To serve the kingdom and serve the poor and serve the unchurched. And to love him with all of our strength, with everything we've got. Because biblically, love is a doing word, not a feeling word. And you know the way some churches talk about a relationship with God, it's as if it's like a relationship with some distant relative. You know the kind of relative I have in mind? The best way that I can characterize it is the way some prayers sound is It's as if they're writing a letter to someone every week who never seems to write back. And actually, you don't really expect them to write back. So you never really know whether they're receiving them or not. Or whether they're interested in what you've said. So you just keep on writing each week anyway, just in case, because it's the faithful thing to do. But you've never really met them in person never had a two-way conversation, never felt you've really ever heard back from them. That's the kind of way that some prayers sound in some churches. But you know, that is not the kind of relationship, if you can call it that, that's not the kind of relationship that the Bible talks about between us and God. Let me explain. In John 17.3, Jesus is praying for us and he says, eternal life is all about knowing God and Jesus, who he sent. And he meant starting now. And in Philippians 3.10, the Apostle Paul says he's given up everything that he used to think was great in his life for something far better, which is to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And in both these verses, it's the same Greek word, to know, And it means to know someone personally, to get to know them, to understand them, and to be known by them. It's even the same Greek word that means to know someone intimately. It's the word that's used in the Christmas story 
to say that Joseph didn't know Mary before Jesus was born. So in the genteel language of the day, it was a a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So a church that's worth believing in is one that puts Jesus' most important commandment at the very top of the list of what's important to us as well. A church that is passionate about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and inviting others to come and experience that as well. Point number two is very closely connected to point number one because some of you may have noticed that when I talked about Jesus' answer to that question, what's the most important commandment, I missed a bit out because Jesus is asked for one commandment But he answers with two. One from Deuteronomy, the one that I mentioned, and one from Leviticus, which I didn't. And Jesus said the second one is like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, the whole Bible, in other words, all of it hangs on these two. So why, when Jesus is asked just for one, does he insist on making it two? Why not just answer with what you would think is the obvious one? Sounds a very Christian kind of answer, doesn't it? Oh, it's all about just loving God. But what's with this love your neighbor business as well? Why would God be bothered about that? And why does he say the second one is like the first one? Well, here's the reason. We see it in 1 John 4.20, whoever doesn't love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God who they've not seen. Notice how it says here, they cannot. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? And, and this kind of reminds us of something weird that Jesus said in Matthew 25.40, where he said that every time we do something for one of the least of his brothers and sisters... As far as he's concerned, we're doing it for him. And if you want to know who the least of his brothers and sisters are, then Jesus goes on to tell us. He says it's the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, which I'm afraid includes the immigrants and the refugees. Sorry about that. As well as the guest and visitor in church. Those who need clothes, those who are ill, and those who are in prison. And then just to reinforce the point, the other way around, he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And that includes immigrants and refugees as well. Don't let any super spiritual person sell you the catchphrase that God made us to be human beings, not human doings. It sounds very spiritual, but it's crass. Yes, of course, it's both and. We need to be and to do. And of course, our doing always starts in our being, who we are in Jesus. But it never just stops there. So if you like the idea of having Jesus over for lunch after the service today, then ask someone who's a guest or visitor. Because he sees that as having him over for lunch. So that's the second point. The kind of church that's worth believing in is one that's passionate about loving others 
just as much as it is about loving God. Because in Jesus' way of thinking, you can't separate them. How we love each other is the visible evidence of whether and how we're loving God. And he says that, not me. And then finally, point number three. The kind of church I think is worth believing in is a church where people can grow and flourish and be fruitful in their lives. Do you know the very first thing that God does after he's created human beings in Genesis chapter 1? He blesses them. And the first thing that he tells them to do is to go and be fruitful in their lives. I hardly know where to begin with some Bible verses that explain that over and over again. But let's, let's start with something that Mike Pilavachi said. He said, we want to have a culture of unrestrained mercy and grace because I might need it myself one day. You know, too many people feel that the vibes they get from churches are not a lot of mercy and grace instead of unrestrained mercy and grace. But you know, it's mercy and grace that causes us to grow and to flourish and to be fruitful in life. John Tyson says the church should be like a greenhouse in which things can grow that can't grow in the same way outside of the greenhouse. And that's another fruitfulness analogy. Somewhere that young plants are lovingly and carefully nurtured and fed and watered and taken care of so that they will be fruitful. Jesus used the same picture language himself when he said, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. John 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the way to know whether someone's a Christian isn't what they say or whether they go to church. It's what kind of fruit you see in their lives. Just uh, one more and we'll leave it there. Uh, A while ago I did a talk that you, you may have been here, you may have heard, and I called it the most important verse in the Bible. Uh, And someone then said on Facebook, how could anyone say there was a most important verse? And, And I know what they mean, but actually that was kind of the point in the talk um, that I wanted people to think about. And this was the verse that I chose, John 10.10, where Jesus said this, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And here in this one verse, I think we kind of see the choice between the two kingdoms that we can live in. There are only two, and the kingdom of God is one of them. The kingdom of this world, which is life without God, is the other. Our destiny for our lives in one of those kingdoms is to be robbed, destroyed, and ultimately just to die. Satan is the thief, and that's what he does. He steals our life away. He just wants to destroy it. But in the kingdom of God, our destiny in Jesus is to have life and to have it more abundantly. And the reason I chose that verse is because 
What Jesus says here directly corresponds to that first thing that God did and said to humanity in Genesis 1. Blessing us and saying, be fruitful in your lives. And that, I think, is what God still wants to do. Above and beyond anything else for us. The reason that Jesus came into this world and died on the cross was not to give us new rules. He came to show us how very much God loves us and wants to rescue us from that thief who wants to steal our lives and destroy our lives. So isn't that exactly the kind of thing we should be like as his church, as his people? Shouldn't his agenda be our agenda as well? Shouldn't the kind of church that's worth believing in be one where we're passionate about loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Where we're just as passionate about loving others as well because Jesus says you can't separate them? And being a church where people can grow and flourish and be fruitful in their lives and experience the kind of abundant life that Jesus wants them to have. And to try to be and do all of that is why we give financially and why we serve on Sunday mornings and why we sacrifice so that we can do our very best together to build the kind of church that is worth believing in. One, I hope, in which God himself will feel at home. One where I hope God will want to uh, send people that we might look after them for him. That, I think, is the kind of church that he thinks is worth bothering with. And I hope that, by the grace of God, our friends and our family and our work colleagues, maybe they also just might feel that that is the kind of church that's worth bothering with.